You're listening to a new episode of Hallway Talks with Luisa and Mia. This week, we caught up with Bloomberg columnist, author, PhD economist from Harvard, NIU professor, and is that all? Gernot Wagner. Professor Wagner is a climate economist, a combination of words that some might call an oxymoron. Our curiosity was piqued when we read his bold and compelling work on climate policy and risk analysis. So we decided we just had to grab him in the virtual hallways of NYU for a quick chat. He talked to us about the social cost of carbon, the climate change plans of both presidential candidates in the 2020 election, and pathways to a zero carbon future. So sit back, grab some coffee and enjoy. Recorded October 8, 2020. Professor Wagner, first of all, thank you so much for coming here, talking with us. We are very excited to have you here. I think that since you started teaching at Wagner, we've been hearing all about you and you've been definitely a name that's been circulating all around. So I hope some good th- I hope some good things too, not just the bad stuff. Yeah, well, that's still to be determined. Let's okay. see the question that you're going to today. <laughs> but I think we can start here as you started your own book. So Ria and I, we were reading to Climate Shock, and we saw that in the preface of your book, you start saying that climate change is both an opportunity for action, but also for profit. And I think this is quite of an original way of thinking about climate change. So can you explain to us what you mean by that? I'll try. <laughs> so I guess there is the usual response, which, um, to be clear, is you know, less and less frequent. But whenever I tell someone I'm a climate economist or an environmental economist, the typical response is, wait, what? Like, pick your side. Which of the two, right? Okay, so um, when you put the two together, other than it being an oxymoron to some, what becomes crystal clear immediately is that on the one hand, yes, there are trade-offs. There really are, right? You can't always get what you want, as philosopher Mick Jagger is the one talking, right? Um, (laughs) On the other hand, well... um, there are some standard assumptions that we often, that economists often make about the world that are, well, let's just say not always quite as true as advertised. So yes, on the one hand, there's a clear trade-off, right? It costs more to decrease emissions than to basically just go on doing our business as usual uh, burning fossil fuels, polluting the climate, uh, and so on, right? Sort of running the economies the way we've been used to for, you know, decades, centuries by now. On the other hand, yes, there are some real opportunities. There really are, you know, especially right now, right? So, you know, in the uh, post-COVID or, you know, still COVID uh, uh, world we are in, um, you know, eventually, We'll like to get out of the deep freeze we are currently in, uh, the public health-related deep freeze. Um, what? How do we do that? Well, by spending money, by investing. 
right? Yes. By more economic activity. And yes, um, a green stimulus is in fact a thing, right? So you stimulate the economy by investing in clean energy, yep. um, the green, lean, mean, or carbon technologies. Um, and there, those trade-offs suddenly become much less obvious, or for that matter, they turn into opportunities, into investment opportunities. So that leads me to, I guess, how we measure the cost of the carbon that is put into the environment. Uh, you did talk about this concept called social cost of carbon. If you could maybe walk us through how we calculate it or what the concept is to begin with. It's in many ways the holy grail of climate policy, climate economics, anyone looking at the benefits and costs of cutting CO2 emissions. There are benefits, of course, the uh, removing climate damages, decreasing climate damages. That's the clear benefit. There are also costs, right? That's, you know, that's the amount of money it costs to weatherize our homes, to invest in clean, uh, more efficient technologies. And you know, the bread and butter of economists often is to run these benefit cost analyses. Well, the mother of all these benefit cost analyses is precisely this calculation that derives the right. social cost per ton of CO2. Now, just to give you a sense of the numbers, right? So uh, the average American emits around um, 16 tons of CO2 per year per person. Average European emits around eight tons. I'm a dual citizen. I get 16 plus 8, 24. Right? And every one of these tons causes certain damage and ought to be priced at a certain level. What is that level? It's the social cost of carbon. Opinions differ. Numbers differ. But you know, if you asked me right now, I put a gun to my head and asked me what the, what the right number is, I would say at least $100 possibly 200, possibly more. I can't tell you for sure what it ought to be. I can also tell you there are you know, other, others out there. Uh, for example, you know, these days we hand out Nobel Prizes in economics for, for these kinds of insights. A couple of years ago, Bill Nordhaus, Yale economist, won a Nobel Prize for basically developing a model uh, that allows us to do this calculation. It's called the DICE model. Um, he developed mm -hmm. it in 1992, right? So it's been around for a while. And while his number, his answer has been going up ever since 1992. So it started with $2.50 in today's dollars in 1992. By now, he's up to somewhere around $40 per ton of CO2. $40 relative to 100 or more isn't all that much. Um, now, you know, it's more than you're currently paying, especially in this country, um, where at the federal level, we pay nothing for emitting CO2, at least not explicitly but of course there is a huge huge difference between those forty dollars or fifty dollars or whatever it might be and hundred dollars or more or put differently it's essentially the difference between an exxon mobile supported carbon tax and yes exxon does support a carbon tax bill and they support a, a level of around forty dollars per ton and something like the green new deal Right or Joe Biden's climate plan, right? Okay. So, uh, so yeah, there's a huge, huge gap. Green New Deal, Biden's proposal, 
Of course, this is a topic that is on everyone's mind since the election, unfortunately, is not as important as we all thought it was going to be maybe six months ago, but it's still there and still something that's been discussed. So what's your opinion on these programs and different platforms? that our candidates have been presenting? Well, uh, you know, not to be too overtly political, but I believe uh, there is one candidate who has a climate plan and there is another one who doesn't, right? So We can all sign on that, yes. I wonder, I wonder which. So it's not, there is, you know, there's you know, one person with a plan and the other one who doesn't, right? So, okay, which one to support is pretty easy. More to the point, though, yes, of course, right, there are better and worse ways of going about, to use the dirty economic term, internalizing the negative carbon externality. Um, you know, frankly, spending $2 trillion on uh, green infrastructure, having 20% of all federal spending uh, be earmarked up to a point toward climate, putting justice uh, concerns front and center. Um, all of that sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, had, okay, to full disclosure, right? Had you asked me a couple of years ago what my ideal number is um, for how much to invest, I don't think I would have given you precisely the Joe Biden climate plan, the precisely the $2 trillion number. Frankly, I probably would have given you a much lower number because I would have never thought it possible for something as ambitious as that to even be up for a vote, right? To even be, be, be possible. And uh, uh, the sense of this, this year, Joe Biden's climate plan is more ambitious than Bernie Sanders's plan four years ago, right? So we are just in a different world. Uh, you know, sort of the pendulum has swung so hard in you know, the other direction right. these last three and a half, almost four years, that... Yes, we are swinging very, very hard in the other direction. When I say we, it's basically average voter, right? The yeah. uh, sort of demand for, let's just start right with the Swedish 16-year-old, uh, 17-year-old right by now, Greta Thunberg, yeah. right? She, she started with, you know, zero Twitter followers, um, you know, two years or so ago. She has, what's her latest? Three million, yeah. uh, four million people, <laughs> okay. right? I am my, my proudest, proudest achievement over the last several months is that Greta now follows me on Twitter. Um, so that's just a, you know, we are just in a, we are, yeah, thank you. But we are, we are just in a, we are just in a different world, right? right? You know, had, had Clinton been elected, right? Obviously, lots of things would have been better for the environment, for the climate. But really what would have happened is a continuation of Obama era policies. Many of them were very, very good. But when you compare the level of ambition of those policies to now, frankly, what's now being proposed, today's proposals, again, from one side of this, of this election here, are a lot more ambitious than most of us thought imaginable only four years ago. Right? So, you know, that's that, frankly, that's, that's a good news. That's yeah. real good news. You know, would I have, you know, held, held my nose consciously for four years, just, you know, thinking that it would be a good thing for Trump to get elected in order for the pendulum to swing back? No, of course not. Yeah, uh, yeah like my, my wife's an abortion doctor, right? So no, this stuff hits home, <laughs> right? right? Um, yeah. But on the other hand, uh, what we're seeing right now actually, you know, makes me, makes me hopeful, makes me optimistic. So I want to maybe delve deeper into who are the players and stakeholders that we're talking about 
Could you maybe walk us through what the nexus of the climate change problem that we see? Can you walk us through who the players of those nexus are and how realistic it is to hold them accountable? You know, as I guess, I guess the the main players in the the broader scheme of things, right, are obviously the big polluters, the big fossil companies who you know aren't aren't just sort of bit players in this right but they play a central role in having frankly guided our very understanding of this problem and what what i mean by that is so actually so here's a, here's a question for you uh do you know what your personal carbon footprint is i ride a bicycle so i'm sure mine is very low <laughs> uh, it, right so yeah so we all you know we do our we do what we can okay so the the reason, <laughs> one of the main reasons why uh, many of us have heard of uh, this concept of a carbon footprint in the first place is because of British uh, Petroleum, BP. BP in the early 2000s, right? They went through that phase where they called themselves beyond petroleum. Um, yeah, lowercase because it's cooler, right? Um, and at the same time, like 2004 or so, they introduced a carbon footprint calculator on their own website. They took out you know, $100 million-ish worth of ads in this country, in the U.S. alone, to entice us to go to that website and calculate our footprint. And they uh, took out these ads to encourage us all to go on a low-carbon diet. That phrase is BP's. Well, it's, you know, Madison Avenue's, but um, <laughs> this is advertisement companies, right? Um, uh, working for BP, mm-hmm. advertising the, uh, uh, advising them on how to make themselves known, right? How to become... Now, BP is a fossil fuel company. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, the, back then they had, you know, some solar and wind investments and so on, but not all that much. Um, they make their money from oil and natural gas as... Most of those majors um, have been doing for a while. Now, actually, you know, fast forward to today, right? BP with a new CEO has in fact declared uh, to want to, in some sense, be carbon neutral at a a, a certain date. And they are in fact doing lots of sort of very concrete things to basically diversify their own portfolio. Well, because, you know, they see the writing on the wall, right? Right. They want to be relevant in a post-carbon world. And that's essentially what they're uh, positioning themselves for. Well, back then, 2004, that was you know not really the case, right? Well, long story, but what's the point of this? Well, the fact that we should emphasize our own carbon footprint, that mm-hmm. this is a problem that stops with the consumer, that the consumer is ultimately responsible, that we as individuals need to make better choices. Yeah. That's what the world companies want us to do. Right. Right. Yeah. And for that's good the reason, narrative. right? Exactly. Right. So that's the narrative that they want to be. Yeah. Well, why? <laughs> uh, because first of all, if the emphasis on the, is on the consumer, it, right, it removes the blame from them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And more importantly, and frankly, this now we have seen very clearly uh, the last few months um, uh, during COVID lockdown, Right? We literally went back to our caves. We locked ourselves into our apartments. We didn't travel. Businesses shut down and so on. Okay, what happened to carbon emissions? Globally, at the height of the quarantines, 
they decreased by around 20%, up to 20%, so like 17%. That's, that's big. That's, that's a huge change, like, you know, bigger than anything mm-hmm. before. On the other hand, it literally shut down everything. <laughs> yeah. And emissions only increased by less than a fifth, less than 20%. Right, the other 80%. Uh, exactly, right? So in other words, right? I mean, this is sort of, you know, this is, this is a proof of concept here, right? We simply cannot hope to decrease emissions by enough, which by the way means we have to decrease emissions to zero, right? It's not just minus right. 20%, it's minus 100% over the next few decades, right? We can't get to where we need to be by simply shutting ourselves in and shutting everything down. Or put differently, the solution to climate change is not less economic activity. It is more economic activity. It is investment. It is deploying right, clean, lean, mean energy sources. Uh, it costs money, right? Flip side right. of uh, investment, of course, is cost. Sure. But of course, it also means more economic activity, more employment, um, more opportunities. And yes, in order to reduce our emissions, we have to invest money, spend money. Now, you know, to fossil fuel companies, that looks like a cost. To the rest of us, that looks like an opportunity. And frankly, to them too, right? To big energy companies, right? This is sort of the the later day uh, BP story, right? You know, they are not saints now either, but frankly, well, they are diversifying their portfolio, much more so than, let's say, a company like Exxon, who, right, has always been the pariah here in this story. Uh, they still are, right? So they may well, you know, eventually when it, when they also think that it will make sense for them, they'll jump on the train, right? Right now, right, their plans are basically more emissions, more oil production. So yes, right, to back to your question, who are the back, big players? Energy companies, the big ones, of course, are in fact some of the biggest players because A, they shape our perception of things. They, in some sense... Right, have taught us how to think about the problem. And then, of course, right, the lobbying and everything else happening, well, uh, you know, the system is in many ways rigged on to favor their interests and to make it much, much more difficult to do the kinds of things that we all think is necessary. So you're saying here that the solution is getting the economy back on and making the investments go to the right places where we can say to clean energy, to renewable energy, to projects that contribute to climate resilience instead of global warming. But historically, the money doesn't go to these kind of projects, right? It goes to the fuel, it goes to the fracking, it goes to all of that. How can we make sure that the money is going to the right place? Well, um, this is uh, the NYU Wagner School of Public Service, right? So yeah. the answer is, in fact, precisely with public policy. This is not right, us hoping that business will see the light one day and do it all themselves. No, it is, and they used a technical phrase here, internalizing the negative externality. Yeah. Yeah. It is ensuring that business pays for the cost of the pollution. And when I say business, of course, it's you, know, it's you and me as well, right? It's uh, at the end of the day, yes, the buck does stop with the consumer, right? BP mm-hmm. in their advertisement command, they were right about that, of course. Um, now, uh, as we saw during the COVID lockdown, right? 
the, the overall system is structured in a way that even if we try to shut down everything, right, we still emit, you know, 80% of emissions still remain, basically, right? We, we, we can't shut our way out of this problem. We have to invest our way out of this problem. You know, the real answer is market forces guided in the right direction. Right? We, are, we are not going to shut down the world, the world economy, society, or for that matter, doing so right, isn't going to get us where we need to go vis-a-vis climate or, frankly, most of the world's problems, mm-hmm. and COVID included, by the way. Right? So, yes, of course, the first reaction is to you know, just stay home. Right? Right. Now, it turns out you know, investing in uh, personal protective equipment, right? PPE, as you know everyone by now knows what it stands for. Um, you know, all of that too is more economic activity, right? Investing yeah, yeah. in uh, research and development of drugs, investing in the kinds of right, uh, filters for air conditioning systems and so on and so forth, right? Even there, right? Even there where the first appropriate rea- reaction was to basically stay home, yeah. the slightly more sophisticated response, of course, also implies more investment more mm-hmm. economic activity or in other words when it comes to something like climate change or covid for that matter more regulation more mm-hmm. rules to channel those market forces in the right direction right so it's interesting that you talk about how public policy has to guide this because i would like to take the example to california which is a climate forward state has good policies in terms of mileage and emission control. And yet we see it burning right now. We see it up in flames. So what does this teach us about, I guess, the scale of effort that needs to be put in? Well, a couple of things. So one, of course, right, even you know, California is one of the richest uh, jurisdictions out there, right? Uh, the state independently would be the fifth largest economy on the planet, right? Of course, uh, the fact that 15% of all gasoline in this country is burned in uh, California by Californians, right? That contributes to the problem too. Yes, it does, of course. But of course, California is only one of many, many jurisdictions, of the planet, it only consumes 15% of all gasoline uh, sold in this country, and the US only consumes some like 20% of gasoline globally, right? So, in other words, California itself is only a bit player, right? Even if California did everything right, cut its CO2, let's say, to zero and then some, right? Start sucking some out of, of thin air, right? right? Even then, California alone simply can't solve the problem. Right. So the one interpretation of all of this is to say there's no way that we can solve global warming to anything through anything other than a global solution. Right. Global problem demands a global response or you know, a much more global response than we currently have. It can't just be the Californians and the Europeans and uh, you know, the Japanese or whoever else. Right. Sort of individual countries who who bear the brunt, right? Or Costa Rica declaring to go carbon neutral, right? So yes, all of that is great, but of course we need much, much more. So the first response is in fact pessimistic, right? Uh, not <laughs> yeah. even not even a liberal progressive state like California can address this problem. And of course that's true. The other response, you know, slightly, you know, actually slightly more optimistic take on this, on this first is to say, well, turns out we do see a lot of this kind of 
activity that, that is in fact necessary to address the problem. So California is taking very aggressive uh, steps, even uh, you know, announced recently. So Governor Newsom just very recently announced a few weeks ago, uh, California will start effectively banning internal combustion engines by 2035, right? So in 15 years, uh, you are no longer able to buy cars that are not electric, or at least not gas. You can't buy cars that burn gasoline. That's right, that's a huge step. And by the way, California isn't the only one, right? Germany. You know, I'm Austrian originally, so I can make fun of the Germans. Of the North, <laughs> but, so Daimler-Benz and Volkswagen and BMW, right? So, you know, they're, they're known for producing cars. Well, Germany is going to basically, going the way of effectively transitioning away from internal combustion engines, mm-hmm. which is, right, you know, is it quickly enough? Um, from a purely sort of environmental perspective, no, of course, they could be doing more. They should be doing more. Um, the fact that right, they're still burning coal is, is horrible and so on and so forth. Right? Lots and lots of steps that they could, should be taking to be more ambitious. On the other hand, well, that announcement alone, or the California announcement, was you know, a surprise yeah. to many of us. Right. And certainly a positive step in the right direction where California is truly taking the lead. And of course, the point is not to go it alone, but to encourage others to follow suit. Mm-hmm. Right. So California has a, a cap and trade system, an emissions trading system for CO2. In effect, it covers 85% of all of its greenhouse gases. Is it ambitious enough? No. Is it a fantastic first step? Yes, absolutely. And of course, there too, right? The point is not to remain the one state in the country that has as an ambitious a, a state-level climate policy as California, but to encourage others to follow suit, to encourage Washington, D.C. to follow suit, right? So good news, bad news in all of this. All right. And um, yes, right? So we do see many other positive steps, like actually China just recently, right? A couple of weeks ago, Chinese president at, at the UN General Assembly essentially announcing to, frankly, everybody's surprise that China will become carbon neutral mm-hmm. by 2060, Yeah. right? Is it soon enough? Well, no, not quite. <laughs> it would be better if it were 2050, of course. That's what the EU has as its goal. On the other hand, that's... Fantastic on so many levels. Uh, the prior commitment was peak its emissions by 2030. Turns out they're going to beat that goal by around five years. So their emissions are now projected to peak at around 2025 or so, with urbanization playing a major role, right? Many, many more moving to cities where the life simply is more carbon efficient than, uh, you know, in the suburbs, especially. So all of that is um, uh, good. And frankly, yes, there's lots of reason to be optimistic. So now that we went from California to China, and I think you gave us a great overview of both the global and the more local opportunities for policymaking that can help us with climate resilience in the years to come, I think I want to shift a little and go back to the beginning of the podcast when you're saying that your economy is talking about climate change, and that's a voice that we don't hear all that much. So I would love to know what you, a young economist from Austria, how did you get involved with climate change? Where does this passion started and how did you mold your career thereafter? 
Um, I guess one way of putting it, I've never done anything else in my life. Uh, so, well, actually, that's that's a fair statement, right? So, I guess one one way of putting it, I was an environmentalist as a as a teenager, and I guess you know all of us are at some point. Mm -hmm. And I never grew up. That's just all <laughs> I've ever focused on. Um, and frankly, I've been fortunate enough to do that. Uh, you know, undergraduate uh, studied environmental science, public policy, economics, um, undergrad. I am a PhD in political economy, but focused on climate, climate policy while doing that. And then uh, you know, spent almost a decade at Environmental Defense Fund, uh, most recently left as the, as, uh, the uh, lead economist there, uh, went to Harvard for a few years, and now I've been here at NYU for um, over a year by now. So do you think it would be fair to say that you thought on um economy to solve climate change and not the other way around? Kind of. So largely, frankly, um, maybe one of the most uh, memorable conversations I had, uh, it was my co-author, a very prominent environmental economist, Muddy Weitzman. So this was uh, Thursday, September 17th, 1998. Still remember that date <laughs> like it was yesterday. I went to his office hours and he basically sat me down He walked me through one of his most prominent research papers on this field called prices versus quantities, basically how to address environmental problems. Do you set a price or do you limit the quantity? And you know, he didn't do it so much to sort of teach me about prices versus quantities. He did it to teach me about research. And one of the most memorable things um, I got away from this meeting is that was the first time I heard about the hammer versus nail analogy. Okay. Uh, you know, are you are you a hammer person or a nail person? Are you focused on the tools, the hammer, mm. or are you focused on the topic, the nail? Right? Okay. Are you going going through life with your hammer trying to find nails, and in some sense you don't care what the topic is as long as you can apply your tool, yeah. or are you going through life worrying about a particular topic, climate change, and in some sense you don't care what the tools are, right? Sometimes. You, you read history books because that's what you need to understand what's happening. Sometimes you run an economic regression because, well, that's what you need to do to um, have an impact in this particular area. And frankly, you know, I left his office that day, afternoon, uh, September 17th, 1998. <laughs> and I you know, swore to myself, promised myself uh, that I will be focusing on the nail, yeah. the nail being... <laughs> climate change. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I left his office, walked straight into a lecture that Kofi Annan was giving that evening um, mm -hmm. at Harvard and, you know, fairly large auditorium where it later turns out that I was in the same room as my now wife of almost 20 years. And of course, our almost 10 year old is called Annan. Uh, oh. So yes, quite the day, but yeah, main point of all of this I focused on the nail almost my entire life. Professor Wagner, thank you so much. I really think that you have a unique perspective. Definitely gave us a lot to think about and hope to see you soon on the virtual hallways of NYU. <laughs> thank you. This is great. Thanks so much.